This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock, a business of intercessory prayer for businesses. Learn more at MarketplaceRock.com. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. All right, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we just have a phenomenal topic today, and it's about breaking just that that relationship that we all have with time and money. And, you know, we all talk about... Uh, or we talk about so often our whole community. The emails I get is, you know, how do we increase our in, our impact? How do we increase our influence out there? And and I really, in there's so many different limiting beliefs. There's uh, things that we've been taught by the world that don't serve us well. And today, uh, Sharon, we're going to just break through some of those things, aren't we? Yes, we are, and I'm excited to be on the show. And just thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Well, and I'm I'm excited to have you here. So, just a little background, Dr. Sharon Spano. You're you're a business strategist, workforce expert. You are a radio host on Work Smart Live, uh, which I'd love. I need to go back and listen to that. I bet it's archived. Um, you know, and we were just talking before this. I Man, you just have a passion to just empower business leaders and entrepreneurs to just get to that next level of performance. Uh, increase engagement, you know, get those results. But really, you know, the way you do it, and I could just hear your heart as we were talking before we we hit record here, it was just, it was powerful, Sharon. So I, I just thank you for who you are and what you're doing right now. And I know you're, you're a certified professional integral coach and your your focus and what you're dedicated to is helping others adopt these new paradigms about time and money so that we can step into radical abundance in every area of our lives. And I love the sound of radical abundance. So I'm going to be asking some questions, but I'm going to be all ears, all ears here with my, my pad out and my pen in my hand, if that's okay, Sharon. That sounds great. <laughs> yes, yes. Whatever questions I can answer, I'd be happy to do so. Uh, you know, Sharon, le- you know, leading up to writing this book, uh, The Pursuit of Time and Money, How to Step into Radical Abundance, Discover the Secret to a Meaningful, Prosperous Life. I can tell you that is a huge theme of what we talk about here on Eternal Leadership. And I'm excited to go through this topic. My guess is that there is some pretty significant backstory in the journey that you've taken up to this point where all this has come together. And I would love to start there and just share so people can kind of get to know you, but also where all this has come from. Because I think this is a concept that if people can really embrace, can really accelerate, you know, what they're trying to do, where they're going uh, in their life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, John, I, I just thank you for, for looking at it from that perspective, because uh, as you know, <clears throat> excuse me, most of my work is with individuals, business leaders and entrepreneurs who are smack in the middle of some kind of either personal or professional dilemma or challenge or some kind of transition. That, that's typically who I work with. And uh, what I began to see in these individuals is often uh, time and money are always in the mix. I mean, that's just kind of a part of our daily life, right? And we make a lot of choices and we make a lot of decisions, often at a subconscious level that are grounded in time and money. And certainly I've been there myself. Um, as you know, I had a son that was born with a very rare metabolic disorder and our, our son was um, critical for four years. And so we had a lot of those 
same kinds of dilemmas and decisions as we were moving through Michael's illness. He unfortunately passed away in 2008. And then you, you kind of move into another phase of life where you're looking at, uh, you know, who are we now as a couple, as, as entrepreneurs ourselves. And uh, I just saw time and money always in the mix of, of many, many uh, moments, both professionally and, and personally, as you know, you're trying to figure out uh, how do you move through life when you've had adversity hit you in that way? And certainly I see it in corporations in general. I mean, often it starts with the CEO, uh, whatever that mindset there uh, is, you know, you can see it start to impact the decisions and how they trickle down in, into the workforce. So it's not so much for me about time and money in and of itself. I see those really as tools uh, really a way to look at who we are and how we focus our attention and what is it that really matters to us. And so we're, we're talking about those two very practical constructs and I'm looking at them from uh, an adult development lens. That's, that's the other part of my work. And we find that it's very interesting when you can uh, look at things from that perspective because based on where people are developmentally, they have a different way of making meaning. And so, for instance, in the, in the example of my son's, Michael, my, Michael was our son's name, his illness, um, as dramatic and traumatic as it was, it was also a very spiritual time for us as a couple and an opportunity to really be grateful for the 27 years that we had him because he originally was only supposed to live to the age of two. Wow. So I, I think there's just, you know, families, you know, people in general, we all have a story, Right. And time and money is always in the mix. And that's part of how our, um, we, we, we can, you know, experience stress if we allow it to overtake us. Well, yeah, thank you, you know, for sharing that. Um, we could probably do just a whole episode on how you and your husband, you know, dealt with, you know, and walked through with Michael this, this entire time of your life. You know, you know, as you, as you think back, what, you know, just for maybe other people that are just going through significant, you know, events in life. Anything you'd just share with them? Well, you know, um, there were so many, many moments where I, <laughs> actually from the time Michael was born, where I thought I was in control. And I mm. think moms do that in one way, dads do it in another, where we think, you know, we, we can do all the right things and we're going to fix this. And really what I, I, I learned, I learned a great amount of humility um, from my son and, and through my experience with Michael. But, you know, ultimately when I got to the end of the line and realized his, he was uh, hospitalized um, the, near the end, it was seven, a 17-day period where we were moving through the process of letting go and accepting that, you know, he, he was actually gone. And we just had to, you know, go through all those stages of, of the letting go and letting the body do what it needs to do. And it's a very sacred time. And it was in those 17 days, uh, probably about maybe six days in when I began to realize that <laughs> I never was in control, that I was really just the, 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 I was the one to whom God entrusted this amazing young man and I was blessed by him, but the contract at the end of the day was between him and God. And um, 
it, you know, I really, I, 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 I just really had no say in when the end was going to come. I mean, you know, you're, you're kind of sitting there every day in this room with this person that's been the center of your life. And, you know, my husband and I didn't know from one day to the next when that moment might come. And that's a very humbling um, experience, you know, to know that there's nothing you can do. And it totally is between, you know, uh, you know, Michael and God. And I learned about obedience in those final days. I learned that mm. if I just listened and did uh, what, because I actually had a moment, John, in the waiting room, um, like day two or something. And I remember being face down, my head in a pillow, just sobbing and asking God to either heal him or take him. Because you can imagine, and I know you know this from your own story, after four years of battling, I mean, he, he was he was a slight uh, young man, only 110 pounds when this started, but he went down to somewhere like 40 pounds, and he was literally skin and bones, you know, and so when you talk about time and money, we didn't know how much time we had, and for those that period of four years, you're worried, you know, are you going to lose your insurance, are we going to lose everything we have, you know, how are we going to get through this? And, um, you know, of course, you're willing to do whatever. It's your child, right? But I, I remember being face down in that pillow. And then I literally heard, you know, as we know, though this will maybe sound weird to people who haven't had this experience, but, you know, where you, you hear the Lord speak into your heart. And it's not like this loud, thundering voice or anything. It's just that something speaks to you that you know is outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying to me, you have been an intercessor on Michael's behalf his entire life. Now it's time to take on the suffering so he no longer has to and give him back to me. And I, I remember sitting wow. up and just literally like looking up like, wow, um, okay, I get it. I know what I have to do now. But I didn't know how to let him go after having fought so many years to keep him alive. And then it was just a moment later where Dr. Tom Buckley came into the room and he was the executive director of the group home where our son was living because uh, I think I mentioned that Michael had a rare metabolic disorder. So he was living at that time by his choice, not ours, uh, in a group home. And Tom began to explain to me, because I asked, how do I do this? I, I don't know how to do this part. Um, and he had been through it many, many times with other residents over his career of 30 plus years. And he began to walk me through and help me understand that, you know, Michael was really gone, uh, even though he, his heart and lungs and everything, you know, his brain, you know, was gone. And, um, and he helped me begin to see, you know, what the timelines might look like and prepare, you know, how, how I might prepare my husband and, and we had to prepare staff and all these other, you know, things that had to happen. And um, I just remember, you know, I mean, as emotional as it all was, there was also a sense of peace. It was like, okay, the decision has already been made. I'm just here to execute upon that decision. And um, so we went, you know, again, the 17, the 17 days total. But um, I didn't really understand then <laughs> that I was being obedient but, but later, I would come to, to see how God carried me through the grieving process and the peace that I was blessed with through that process. And um, 
you know, I've always been very passionate about my work and I see it as a calling. And so it took a while for me to redefine my identity without Michael, because that was such a big part of my career and my life. Um, but I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. So that's, that's kind of what I would say to people going through things is, again, the time and money, when we talk about the pursuit of time and money in the book, I'm asking people to just look at it as a conversation. We're not talking about time and money management. There's a lot of resources out there for that. I'm really saying, are you being a good steward? Because, you know, in scripture, we talk about um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so um, are you spending your time and money in ways that honor God? And, and are you spending your time and money in ways that honor the people that God has blessed you with? You know, because at the end of the day, when these people are no longer in your life for whatever reason, I mean, we want to be able to look back, I, I believe, and say, you know, I did my best. You know, I was a faithful servant to my son. My husband and I both know that we did everything we could. He had every opportunity. He had, you know, he traveled. We just, we just did everything we knew to do to give him a rich and full life. And um, we didn't always have the money to do that. You know, there were times where we, we couldn't do that, uh, but we did it anyway. And um, we just we just found a way to make sure that he always had what he needed. And he had, you know, a lot of, of great experiences. And it, so the book gets into paradigms uh, uh, between scarcity and abundance, which I think is really important for people to understand. And I really when I talk about the conversation, I'm saying, what are your early childhood stories? Because that's where it begins for us, those paradigms. What were we taught as children about the use of time and money? And we're seeing some interesting things. I have a, um, an assessment on the website called the Time Money Inventory. And, and we've and been. The website is thetimemoneybook.com, correct? Yes, yes. Okay. And, and one of the resources there on the timemoneybook.com is this inventory, and it's anonymous, and, and it's, you know, no, no charge for that. Just an opportunity for people to take it and get a report to see where they are on the spectrum of scarcity and abundance. So scarcity is fairly obvious. Abundance is fairly obvious for many of us. Where we're finding the interesting data evolve is around the moderate uh, scarcity, moderate abundance. So, so going back to the example of, of, of parenting, for instance, um, the moderate scarcity can look like abundance if you're not um, paying attention. And by that, I mean, it's the dad, for instance, who's doing everything right. You know, what he was taught, he's a responsible dad, he's saving money, he works long hours, you know, all those things that, that seemingly look like the right way to do life. But he's also making fear-based decisions or maybe he's the dad who's, you know, can't even take time away with his kids to go on vacation because he's working so long. And I remember my, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, and when you say fear-based decisions, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, any decision that stops you from, I'll just say the simplest thing is a decision that keeps you, from one, either making a decision that's based on, you know, you have data and information to make the decision. Is usually I find when people are making fear-based decisions, they don't have, they haven't even uh, done their homework. They haven't done, they haven't gone through the discernment process. They're just making a decision based on no information. Um, and then often it's um, 
something that is, it's like they're in bondage to whatever's holding them from making a, a more um, reasonable decision. And often it is time and money. So one of the examples I, I, I can offer is, um, I remember years ago when my son was in middle school, um, my husband had a, a business situation with a joint venture partner that frankly was just an embezzlement kind of thing um, that caused us to go into litigation with, with this particular entity. Oh, and so there was, you know, I think people go through that in business sometimes, right? It's, it's what happens. And um, so we had a period where he was out of work. And um, I remember him coming home and saying, you know, we need to, he had a friend that was dying of cancer in California. We live in Florida. And he said, I'm going to drive out and see him. And then I, then I want you and Michael to fly out and meet me and we'll drive back across the United States. And, and I said, what are you crazy? I mean, you're not working. And I was homeschooling Michael at that time. Mm-hmm. I wasn't working myself. And I thought, you know, we don't have, you know, any real income and we had savings of course and stuff. But, and he said to me, Sharon, we'll never have this kind of time with him again. He's never going to be this age again. I can always make more money, and I will when we get back, but we need to do this with him now. And I trusted that decision. Now, he if he'd been in fear of, of our situation, he never would have made that decision. But we took a trip across the United States in our van. Michael had a canine companion dog and we had duffel bags we had no reservations mike and i flew out to san francisco we drove back it was like a six-week trip we stopped where we stopped we ate where we ate we found a lot of good deals because it was summertime and hotels were reasonable like through phoenix and those places and um looking back now that i no longer have my son those we we both say that that was the best six weeks of our life more importantly when michael was critical he was pretty much you know like someone with dementia uh for the last two years for certain and that's what he talked about he didn't talk about being in a wheelchair he didn't talk about being ill he talked about in his delirium all these places that he had been the grand canyon and you know, the Alamo and, you know, all this stuff. And um, I think, you know, for me, the big lesson was that a big part of parenting is making memories, however you can, whatever, Mm -hmm. in whatever way you can. And so investing your time and money in the people you love um, is not always easy, but I think it's something that we can talk about and own and the inventory in the book are really designed to help people see where they are in the conversation so that they can have awareness of what they might need to consider uh, as options for change. Now, when you talk about awareness for options of change, because, you know, something you state that I thought was really, really kind of connected with me is, you know, prosperity, um, it's not about how much time or money you actually have, right? You didn't have the money when you went on this trip. You didn't know if you had the time, but it was about this mindset and it's a, it's a place to come from. So it's about this mindset shift about how you're viewing time and money. And I can so relate to this because, you know, recovering from my accident, my wife had been homeschooling our kids and she was, she wanted to go back to work and help the family, but she was a physical therapist and her license had expired. So for her to go back to work, Sharon, she had to retake the medical boards, which she ended up doing, but it took her almost two years to do that. And even though God told me he was going to heal me, 
and use this for my glory, I still had those times of mindset where I was, you know, certain decisions I was afraid to make or was I, was I going to be able to support my family? And I can totally relate to what you said about making some of those decisions out of fear. And for me, it was about a journey of moving to a place of trusting God with each step forward, even though sometimes it didn't feel logical. Um, and, you know, when, when you're working with people and you're talking with people, how do you help them kind of make that shift on how they think about time and money? Well, one of the things is, I mean, everything you've said, John, is just so right on because what you're describing to me is what we know in, 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 in the Christian uh, realm is stewardship, yeah. you know, where everything belongs to God and we trust that, that he wants us to have an abundant life. But, you know, that's sometimes easier said than, than realized when you're in real critical, you know, moments of adversity. And certainly that's, you, you've been there, I've been there, probably many of your, your listeners have been there. Um, what I want to do with this book and in the work that I'm about is help people, as I said earlier, examine the storylines because that's where it starts. Mm. And when, I always say with, with the first moment of awareness comes opportunity for change. Um, and so if I know that I come from a family who was always fear-based, you know, which I did, um, you know, we net, we, I came from a very poor family and, and, you know, they just lived in that constantly. So it took me many, many years to break that uh, within myself uh, to trust and and to know that I had the potential as an entrepreneur to create what I needed. My husband is very much from an abundant mindset, so he he's been a big part of of my getting there. But but to answer your question more specifically, the bigger part of what I'm trying to do because my doctoral work is in the field of adult development, and so what we know is there are twenty or twenty there are twelve stages of human development that we know of. And those stages are very important because they, uh, they, that's how we make meaning of our world based on where we are developmentally. So think of, you know, your children in their earlier stages, you know, they remember back, back in the day, I mean, they didn't know a nickel from a quarter. You know, I can remember Michael uh, asking me, why is the dime worth more when it's smaller than the nickel, you know, yeah. um, because it's too abstract for them, right? Well, unfortunately, we have many adults who are in the earlier stages of development. Uh, in, in my field, when we talk about the 12, we know that roughly 60% of the U.S. workforce falls in the, what we call the expert or the achiever stage. So these are very interesting stages because what I'm trying to help people see is they present differently, we think differently, we behave differently, we respond to things differently based on what stage we're in. And so if you're in a certain stage where you're exhibiting fear-based uh, scarcity mentalities around the use of time and money, we can help you see where that's happening such that you begin to adopt new paradigms and new ways of thinking. So that's part of the transformational growth. You can grow, you can, you can grow and develop horizontally as well as vertically. So think of it like, you know, this, this is not accurate a hundred percent because development is not a hierarchy in the truest sense. But if you imagine a mountaintop and there were 12 base camps on the mountaintop and each one represents a stage um, if you're at, you know, stage four, you're going to have a different worldview of the valley below than the guy who's up at the top, at the summit, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, 
And then within each stage, there are also lines of development, and there are 26 of them that we know of based on today's research. So in my work, I focus on six of them. And so we literally can look at where you are developmentally. Uh, we, can, we can move through, you know, by way of interview and analysis and the things that I do, uh, as many of us do in the field. I look at spiritual, moral, interpersonal, somatic, cognitive, and emotional lines of development. And then we can come up with practices, ways for people to flush out those specific lines and grow up and wake up into new and higher levels of thinking and being. So for instance, if you have someone who may be, you know, maybe later stage spiritually because they've done a lot of work in that area, um, but maybe, you know, their interpersonal skills are not that great. Then we, then we might focus and develop practices around their interpersonal skills. You know, I, I see this a lot in corporate, for instance, where you have a, a leader who's very uh, highly developed cognitively, but he doesn't have the emotional intelligence, or maybe he's, he doesn't have, again, the interpersonal skills. So he, you know, he comes off um, in ways that promote scarcity throughout the organization. So I know I've thrown a lot at you, and it's pretty complex stuff, but what's really exciting about the book, as I'm hearing from, you know, my colleagues who've endorsed it and whatnot, is that um, I've managed somehow to bring it down to user-friendly language, and we've got some stories in the book that help people uh, see these kinds of, of um, dilemmas that they may be facing uh, and, and what they might do about them, and we've done it in, in very user-friendly language that I think... Um, you know, will will really serve people in stepping into where they are and where they might want to go. Well, so if I understand this right, let's say I'm I'm kind of at stage four, stage five, whatever stage I'm at. These lines of development almost help me kind of map out what is the best path uniquely for me to get to that next stage. Maybe I am strong spiritually, but I have some of these these storylines that you're talking about. And I think that these, you know, they, the, our experiences, how we view ourselves, how we, you know, words that have been sewn into us, what other people have said to us about who they think we are, um, you know, things that we also think that other people think about us all kind of form this self-identity, these beliefs, these filters on which we view everything. You talked about that view that you have from the base camp, right? It's colored by all these things. So developing this awareness of these storylines that we're maybe we don't even know that it's driving behaviors or how we react or a fear of success, a fear of failure, but to put all that into context so that we can actually forge into that next phase for ourselves. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's a, that's a great recap, and, and you asked me how much of this came to, to be for me in terms of the curiosity around the time and money um, constructs. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I've, I've given you kind of a lot of backdrop of my work in general, but one quick uh, scenario that I like to share that I think your audience would relate to is a gentleman that worked for me years ago, and I, I think probably anyone in business has had a similar experience where you put a lot, a lot of time and money into someone, but yeah. yet they're not really producing. And this was 
a, a high level, you know, former CEO guy that I was very excited about, you know, uh, joining, uh, you know, partnership with. And um, I never could get him to produce. I mean, I tried everything. We did trainings, you know, I mean, I just, I, I just, you know, for three years, I mean, I just really wanted this to work because we had a lot of good creative synergy together. And then one day we were at a conference in California, and I don't even know why I asked the question, John, but I said to him, what do you believe about people who have money? And his response literally just knocked me almost cold. He said, I think people who have money are oppressive, they're greedy, and they're egocentric. And, and well, this was the, the CEO that you were talking to? Well, he, he worked for me. At that point, okay, I had I had put three years into you know trying to get him to produce, and he was doing things, but he wasn't doing the things that I had hired him to do, which was to break into other markets and you know other things. And so, um, it was in that moment when he shared with me his belief system about people with money that I realized there was no way that I was going to help. I mean, if you believe people have, who have money are greedy and oppressive and egocentric, why would you want to be like those guys? Mm. And, and this, and I, I don't believe is much different than many of us because those were stories that were told to him from the time he was a boy. You know, those are the bad people. They have money and we don't. So and if he so, moves toward success, if he moves toward having money, even subconsciously, he's starting to tell himself, I'm, I'm, that's making me not a good person. Well, he had a history of stops and starts in his career and he had failed many, many times. And so um, when he said that to me, I realized, you know, I didn't end the, 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 the relationship immediately. I still kept trying a little bit longer, but I understood that there was a deeper part of him to your point at a subconscious level that at that time I didn't have the resources um, I mean, I, he needed more than I could give him as, as an employer, and, you know. Um, but it began that point, it, it was really the beginning for me of curiosity and starting to notice that, wow, you know, how many of us are walking around with these subconscious storylines and we don't have aware of how we're sabotaging um, our own potential for success and, and, you know, more importantly, I'm more interested in how is it impacting if you have these kind of scarcity belief systems that you're operating from, how is it impacting your ability to love, to serve others, to serve God, you know, your relationships? I mean, that, that to me is what creates, you know, radical abundance to me is, again, you know, like, like the quote you offered around prosperity. It's not a place to uh, get to. It's a place to come from. So radical abundance is about living a meaningful life of joy and prosperity, no matter what your circumstances are. I mean, you're just coming from that place. And, and it's because there's a richness in your life and, and, you, and it's not linked to what you have or don't have. So, you know, people that are listening right now and they're identifying with some of these things or they're like, you know, I'm not where I want to be in my life. And, and I know there's some things in my past that are definitely holding me back. What, what are some of those, you know, those next steps uh, that you've learned that maybe people could take? Well, I mean, of course, what I would want them to do is go to the timemoneybook.com, you know, take the assessment, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's no, no charge for that, as I said. Um, I've got the manifesto on there for the radical abundance that I wrote that they can read. 
Um, but even if they if they're not interested in reading my book or you know, I, I think the first step is to just sit down and and write a paragraph. What do you believe about money and what do you believe about time? And, and kind of let your own spirit reveal to you, much like that gentleman revealed to me. What are my belief systems around these two important constructs that literally are impacting my daily decisions? I mean, each and every day we're making decisions around them, as I said earlier. And, and then where did I get those beliefs from? You know, what did I learn um, from my mom, my dad, my grandmother, whomever? You know, I, I, part of my work in integral coaching is we use journaling a lot to uh, move people people, uh, you know, to those other, other places of development. Um, and journaling is a really important element because it allows us to self-reflect. And, but it also, you know, in our world as, as Christians, it allows space for the Holy Spirit to step in and speak uh, into our hearts and minds. And, you know, if you've done journaling, which I, I know, you know, many, many do, um, you'll, you, know, you can tell when God's kind of speaking to you through your own pen. So that to me would be a very important first step for, for your, you know, your believers is just sit down and start to reflect on what's happening in your life. And, you know, where is time and money? Because I see them uh, not so much as unique constructs. I see them as very much intertwined with one another. It's a bigger conversation than just, you know, time is money. Um, they're, they're very, very closely linked in everything that we do. I, well, I think that's, that is such great advice because just having that awareness, first of all, of just kind of where you're at and how these ideas were formed is just such a great first step of even figuring out what that next step is, isn't it? Well, you know, again, with awareness, if we, if we don't have the awareness, we don't even know where to start. And the earlier stages, particularly, I'll just say this. We know from the research that the earlier stages don't have the capacity to see time, uh, you know, beyond maybe even a year. Some, for some, it's even literally moment to moment. If we have adults that are stuck in the adolescent stages, for instance, um, they're often in prisons and stuff because they, they, everything is immediate gratification and they don't have the ability um, to to imagine consequences of what they're doing. And so... You know, you don't see too much of that in corporate, <clears throat> excuse me, in corporate America, but I do see it uh, among entrepreneurs who, who stop and start and fail, you know, where they can't see. So if I can't imagine time even two years out, you know, you can, you can then, it's not too hard to figure out that I'm going to have difficulty with money or planning for the future. You know, like, like, you know, I've known people who, you know, they have kids in high school and they can't even think like, you know, my kid's going to be out of high school in two years how am I going to pay for college? And it seems kind of hard to imagine that, you know, for, for the average person. But if you're in a survival mode and you're living day to day and you're just trying to put food on the table, you can't think beyond, you know, the next day or the next week, the next month. And um, so there's ways to help people begin to think differently so that they can have the capacity to do the, the typical management things that come quite naturally to, to many others, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. And, and I love what you're talking about because I am convinced that every single person listening to this right now and everybody that you and I get to talk to and work with have 
so much more potential. There's so much greatness that, that God created us with. Remember, we're, we're his workmanship. Let's think about what that means, that we were created perfectly uh, from his perspective for the works that we're called to do. And if there's a passion on your heart, there's a cause, there's an, you know, something you want to create in business or anything else, um, I truly believe that we have what we need right now. But it's a lot of these things that you're talking about so eloquently that are, you know, are this constraint, this bottleneck between here and that full life that we're, that we're, that we're seeking, uh, that we know that we want to live, you know, some of those things we lay there in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, kind of doing the, you know, what if, and you know, what you're talking about is there is a path forward. And I think that is so exciting for people because that's part of the whole element of hope. And I think, and I know for me, just going through this process for me is just hoping and moving into and trusting that tomorrow is going to be better today. And then six months is going to be better than where I'm at right now. And what what could be in two years from now um, has just has given us a lot of joy, even going through some very, very difficult circumstances. But I, I believe for the most part, Sharon, we, we moved through this process with a level of joy in our heart, which was very new, uh, especially from where I was before the accident. So, you know, you know, as we as we wrap up, what are you know everybody listening? What are just some final thoughts you'd, you'd like to leave with everyone? Well, I just want to thank you for your story because I think it is a story of hope, and um, I, I think you know, bottom line is if we do the best with what we have, and we are good stewards, um, we will be blessed. Maybe not with more in the traditional sense of you know more nickels and dimes or or certainly, you know, the clock is the clock, but certainly uh, an experience of radical abundance that that uh, points to that meaningful life and of joy and prosperity. And I talk in the book, I'll, I'll end with this, the cycle of freedom, because I do believe that stewardship leads to greater compassion and more generosity, <clears throat> which in turn equates to gratitude for what we do have. And then again, that greater love for self and others, and ultimately, a greater love for all of humanity. And that to me is, is the true definition of prosperity. And it has nothing to do with how much money you have in the bank. Mm. Love that. And, and so for people to connect with you, right, the timemoneybook.com. And where is that assessment on the website also, just so people can. Yes, it's on that website, the timemoneybook.com. And uh, they can also, you know, for me personally, SharonSpano.com, they can access the book and the assessment through there as well. Awesome. And then in the show notes, we'll have all the links to these sites and also how to connect with you on Facebook and Twitter. And Sharon, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing this, your own, your personal story and um, just what you've done through that, how you're, how you're really equipping and and just helping people launch into, um, you know, a different and a better future, um, giving them the tools to be able to do that. I really encourage everybody to plug into, you know, Sharon, read this book because, you know, this is, uh, I got to tell you, Sharon, as, as, as we've, as the podcast has grown and our audience has grown and we're all over the world and I, I, I get emails from people daily, which we love and we get back to everybody personally. 
Um, but what you're talking about today is some of the biggest questions that are just front of mind with folks. And um, thank you for taking the time and pouring your life, your work, your uh, experiences into what you're doing now. It is just so awesome. It's so needed. And and I just, uh, I'm just thankful to know you. And if there's anything at all that I can do, or our community can do for you, please let me know. Thank you so much, John. And thank you as well for what you're doing. I love your podcast. And we'll be sure to share with, with our friends and, and family and network as well, because I, I believe in what you're doing. It's, it's really, really important. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on today. And I hope we can connect again. And good luck to you as you continue moving forward in your life and what you're doing on this show. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. As I said at the top, this edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock. Is there something that feels like it's blocking your business? The team at Marketplace Rock partners with you in unearthing those things that could be holding you back through intercessory prayer. Just earlier this year, Vicki told me while she was praying, she heard from me, water the seeds. I knew exactly what it meant and got some business out of it. Another time she was praying and accurately described one of our dogs who turned out needed medical attention. John and I can't recommend the team at Marketplace Rock highly enough. In fact, our phone calls with them are the highlight of our week. Visit them online, marketplacerock.com, or listen to either of Amy Everett's past interviews with us, episodes 4 and 66, marketplacerock.com. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Mm-hmm.